Well, hey everyone, it is good to be with you, even though I am only with you virtually. And uh, thankful for David Wood taking the helm last week, walking us through chapter 12 of Revelation and focusing us uh, really on the story of Jesus and the great defeat of Satan at the cross and resurrection and and the ongoing uh, taking back of creation for the kingdom of God, which causes Satan uh, in hatred and anger for God and his creation to do damage on, on his way out. But his fate is sealed and he knows that. I've heard the example uh, before of D-Day and the storming of the beaches of Normandy being considered the decisive battle that ultimately brought a close to World War II in Europe. Even though it wasn't the end of the war, D-Day made V-E Day imminent. Well, it's the same with with Satan, with the devil. The devil is retreating. He knows his end is near. Every time he thinks of the cross, he's reminded that his gun has no bullets. He's got no threats left to make, not real ones anyway. So he threatens and he spews lies, but Revelation tells us he's got nothing. He hates God. He hates God's people. And so he will do what he can on his way out to cause havoc. But his days are numbered. Hear that, church. And, and what we will see today is that he wants to draw as many people away from the truth as he can. So he will pressure the church to give up by threatening her. He will promise power and prestige in hopes to draw us away from the Lamb of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Revelations 13, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 11 to get us started. But we are going to look at the entire book. And you'll recall that at the end of the last chapter, uh, Satan, represented by a red dragon, stands on, on the sand of the sea. And while he stands there, he calls forth these two beasts. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and ten horns, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. Anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at this image that the Apostle John sees. A reminder, the, these images should be thought of more as political cartoons in the same way as a political 
political cartoon about uh, current news in Hong Kong might include a red flag with five petal petaled flower with with stars on each on each petal. China might be represented as a giant red dragon over a crowd of umbrella carrying activists. Uh, the, the images of Revelation are symbolic. The colors, the sizes, and these these beasts represent powers and struggles. Not actual beasts, but real powers and real struggles. Not real beasts. But, but the marks, uh, they all represent actual, uh, or they don't represent actual marks on the body, and numbers do not represent actual numbers. Numbers are symbols, not statistics. So the evil one, Satan, represented as a red dragon, summons two beasts. The first beast we see in verses 1 to 10, and this beast is pretty hideous. I believe last week, Pastor David used the theological word wonky. That's right out of the Greek, wonky. Uh, rising out of the sea, this, this creature has 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns with blasphemous names on its head. The creature is, is not getting a lot of right swipes on Tinder. It's a very unattractive creature. We, we've seen this description in chapter 12. This is a copy of the devil. This is a manifestation of Satan. It's a, it's a mix of creatures that we meet in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, verses 3 to 8, Daniel's given a vision of these four creatures representing four kingdoms, which would come one conquering the other until the kingdom of God would be inaugurated. In Daniel 7, verse 4, there is a lion with eagle's wings. In Daniel 7, verse 5, there's a bear. In Daniel 7, verse 6, a leopard with four wings and four heads. And in verses 7 to 8 of Daniel chapter 7, a hideous, indescribable beast. Four strange beasts representing kingdoms. Most in the first century thought that these were the kingdoms of Babylon, the the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and ultimately Rome, the final beast, this hideous beast. Well, here in Revelation 13, they are combined, each each a hybrid creature on its own, fierce and, and instilling anxiety. But this strange composite beast in Revelation 13 seems to take them all and combine them into one horrific beast with characteristics of each. As one scholar says, this amplifies its hideousness. Beyond the hideous appearance appearance meant to instill fear and cowering, this beast has blasphemous names on its head, making claims that only God should make. Well, you might know Rome had a history of deifying its leaders. As early as 27 BC, uh, deific honors were, were given to Julius Caesar. And that led all the way through to Nero from, from 54 to 68 AD. And then from 81 to 96 AD, Domitian went all the way and demanded that the whole world worship him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, changing the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. Blasphemous claims. This image takes all the fears of earthly political power in its worst form and creates a monster out of it. In John's day, writing this revelation down, it would have been very easy to recognize Rome as a beast, a dangerous representative of of the Satan, demanding and pressuring obedience and promising power and prestige to those who would submit. But this image seems to be more than just Rome. It seems to be a, a monster that represents all political power. All power that demands your ultimate and undivided attention and allegiance. Well, for the church, this is unthinkable. And because of that, it it meant persecution for the church. And historically, it has meant that even even if disciples of the cosmic Christ, the true emperor of all creation, do not set out to be troublemakers, the powers that be will always see us as troublemakers. 
We literally serve a different empire and a different king. And that is why, as Christians, no political party or affiliation should ever make us comfortable. Our first political affiliation is to Christ. A.J. Swoboda, in his book, After Doubt, speaking of the disconnect with worldly, the worldly state of things, he says this, he says, I believe all of our political and theological systems cannot contain the kingdom of God. Politically, I'm a man in exile, and so I take great liberty in my attempts at subverting the system of what we have come to call the right and the left and the middle. While all three may reflect something of God's kingdom, neither can claim a monopoly on it. And he is right. (laughs) That is the political situation of everyone who is a Christ follower. Well, there's an interesting statement in in verse 3. It says, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, most theologians agree, whether they be liberal theologians or conservative, whether they lean towards taking revelation uh, politically or literally, they see this wounded head to represent the emperor Nero, famous for for legalizing the persecution of Christians, using them as as pawns for political gain. Uh, His persecution of Christians was horrific, dressing them in animal skins so they would be torn by wild dogs for entertainment, wrapped them in pitch and set them aflame to light his gardens at night. I I mean, that's no face mask, but it's pretty bad. Well, if there's a figure in the first century that represented an evil force mounted against the kingdom of God, a puppet of the devil, it was Nero. And there was an ongoing rumor in the time of, of John, a rumor that after Nero committed suicide in 68 AD, that he had not actually, in fact, died and was actually recovering on an island somewhere. There was a common held belief that he would come again. There, they, there were writings in the first century labeling him the great beast who could not be killed. And in the back of people's heads was this, this thought that this evil leader of Rome was actually okay. It could also mean that although the church believed that getting rid of Nero would be a massive win, much like the ancient beasts of chaos, the hydra, a new head would simply grow back. It doesn't matter if you took out the leader. A new leader, a new Domitian to take the place of and continue to torment the church. You cannot, take, you cannot rid yourself of this beast. For the empire, this would be a way of saying, no matter what you do, the emperor, the empire cannot be killed. So you might as well bow. Accept your fate. Enjoy the power and the prestige and the comfort that the empire offers. Notice that the point of the beast is to point to the dragon. This this creature causes fear and causes people to look at the power of the beast, the power and the machine of the empire, and cause worship. Verse 4 says, And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? It's a question that is meant to, to make you give up, to throw up your hands in the air and say, You know what? We might as well give in. Why don't we give up on this Jesus thing? Things are just getting worse, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. The, the, the machine of a beastly society seems to turn things upside down. Everything's topsy-turvy. How do we deal with this? We've become the world that that the prophet Isaiah warned about in Isaiah 5.20, where he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's what we feel like as Christians sometimes, isn't it? That, That seems to be the culture we're swimming in. 
And not only is, is evil painted as good, but the church is laughed at. Those of faith are, are laughed at, belittled as, as mindless and, and out, of, out of touch, against liberty and, and progress, an irritating voice no longer needed. And so Hollywood and media, social media seem to do their best to paint those of faith in a negative light and seems to do all they can to paint a picture of life without God and that as a good life. And many decide the fight is too much and it's just easier to give in. In our spirits, we say, who, who is like the beast? Who can fight against this? We look at the world and we say, why, why even bother keeping up with this Jesus thing? Why am I doing this? It seems like a losing battle. It seems like a losing battle out there and it seems like a losing battle in here as I feel the pressure of the world. Sometimes we feel like we are looking at a beast who has the power to persecute those who claim allegiance to God, who, who spews blasphemies, demanding our submission, who wars against the saints. It seems like everyone is blindly following the lure of the beast at times. Who, who can stand up to that? Well, we, we find the answer to that question later on in Revelation. In, in Revelation chapter 17, where the beast and his friends come up against the lamb. Revelation 17 verse 14 says, they will make their war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords, not the mission, not Nero. And he's king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Or again, in Revelation 19, 16, which we'll be studying in, 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 a, in a month or so. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and Lord of Lords. No one else has that right, no matter what the beast says. No, no one else should claim that title. Not the dragon, not the first beast that represents him. And it will mean persecution. And it will mean feeling disconnected from the world. And verse 9 and 10 in chapter 13 make it clear, and this is no news for those of us who've been studying Revelation, that there will be persecution for those associated with the Lamb. Captivity, it mentions, and death. And a continued call by God to persevere, a call to endure and a call to faith. Why? Because things are bigger than they seem. That's the ongoing encouragement of Revelation. The lamb is on the throne and sees and will ultimately bring all things to their proper place. So do not believe the propaganda of the beast. And that's what the second beast is. The second beast in verses 11 to 18 is like the propaganda machine of the first beast. And the message is simple. Keep your attention on the beast. Fear the beast. Enjoy the beast. Conform to the beast and desire his offers of power, his desires of, of protection and prestige. Every ideology and power trying to seduce you, seduce me, demanding our submission and promising power and prestige, if we do, has a propaganda machine. In ancient Rome, every corner was stamped with empire, statues of the gods, statues of the emperors, temples to the gods, often including a sexual element, prostitution, temples to the emperors and to Rome itself. Declaration of Rome's power and promises that giving up your allegiance to Jesus would bring safety, comfort, and stability. Hey, we'll, still, we'll stop bugging you. Man, the beast looks good. Well, and, and we actually see in verse 11, the beast kind of looks like the lamb. It has two horns, has parts that seem good and right, but it speaks like a dragon. Well, how does the dragon speak? We learned this last week. He lies, he accuses, gives false promises and threats. 
Notice the job of the second beast, to have everyone take their eyes off the lamb and worship the first beast, who seemingly cannot be killed. He performs great signs, deceiving those who dwell on the earth. Notice the way that it it tries to imitate God's work. This, This beast is like a lamb with two horns, appearing humble. Verse 12 implies a sort of a resurrection, a mortal wound that is healed. It's like resurrection, but it's not. Verse 13, he brings fire down from the sky like the prophet Elijah working on behalf of God. But what's the point of these displays? Well, it's to deceive. It's to take our eyes off Jesus, it says in verse 14. Well, this reminds us of Christ's words in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, verse 22. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise. They will perform signs and wonders. But why do they do it? They do it to lead astray. If possible, they do it to lead the elect astray. Well, the second beast gives words and images to the first beast. It says in verse uh, 15, there were those in the first century that would create elaborate machines so that large statues would, would move their mouths and someone close by would speak as if they were God, giving the impression of an incarnation, God among men. There are also instances of priests in temples dressing like the gods, put on a pedestal, and in low lighting by candlelight, pretend to be the deity themselves. But I think what we're seeing here is simply the fact that the second beast keeps putting the first beast in your face. You, you could not leave your home without hearing the voice of the beast. You could, not, you could not go to the market. You could not do business without hearing the ongoing message that Rome is inescapable and offers you all that you could possibly want. All you have to do is submit and worship Rome. Submit and worship the emperor, the ways of the empire. Submit in your worship. Submit in your business. Accept the rule of Rome, not simply geographically, but also in your heart and your mind. Who is free from the influence of the second beast? Well, verse 16 tells us no one except those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 16 says, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. If you do not, you will find things difficult. That's the implication. You will find it difficult in the workplace. You'll find it difficult in the public square, in education. So mark yourself as one who belongs to the beast. You belong to the empire, and then we'll leave you alone. Now, what's the, what's the mark? Well, it calls for wisdom to figure out what the mark is. It says in verse 18. Again, it's symbolic. This is not a situation where people will be walking around with the number 666 on their forehead. This is a mark that signifies symbolically allegiance. This is looking down from heaven who is marked for the kingdom and who is marked for the kingdom of earth. Well, there, there, there was and there still is the practice, practice of gematria, of uh, gematria, say it, of equating numbers to letters and then deciphering secret messages. And and with a bit of work, one can come up with the name Nero by taking the ancient Aramaic or Hebrew letters of his name and giving them numeric value. You can come to 666. And it is a possibility that although Nero had been dead for a few decades by the time John wrote Revelation, the idea was that to say yes to Rome and its influence was to say yes to the way of Nero, ultimately destruction for the people of the Lamb and and allegiance to things that are anti-Lamb or anti-Christ. That's a possibility for interpreting 666. However, the the 
practice of gematria could could interpret many names in the first century and beyond to come to 666. So it, it does not do a great job of narrowing it down to Nero or anyone else. It also makes simple sense for all who understand the number seven to mean perfection in Revelation and threes to represent emphasis. Well, 666 is an emphasis of imperfection of the beast that tries to promote its perfection. 666 is the sign of the Antichrist? Yeah. And who's the Antichrist? Nero, but also all those who are in a place of power and would push against and demand denial of the Lamb. And there have been many. The idea in verse 16, in verse 16 of, the, of the hand or the forehead being marked echoes the command of God in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, where it says, Hear, O Israel, this is about, about aligning your life with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be put on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead. You shall write them in the doorposts of your house and your gates. In other words, surround yourself with these. Be marked by these so that you you remind yourself who you belong to. The beast says, give that up. Instead of God ruling over your thoughts and allegiances, the beast asks you to allow him to take full control. And the second beast points to the first and says, don't you want all that he can offer? Don't worry about teaching your kids the ways of God. Leave it to the second beast. After all, he's, he's just a lamb, kind of. He just wants what's best for you, sort of. Don't you want to align yourself with the power of this kingdom? See how it cannot be stopped? Well, in the first century, and for many Christians in other countries up until today, this call of the beast has meant and will mean tension between our political allegiance to the Lamb and the pressure and draw of the world. Just just mark yourselves as one of us. Stop taking Jesus so seriously. So what do we do with this? What's our response to the first and the second beast who calls us to the first beast. Well, well, first, we need to be careful not to draw exact parallels because there, there aren't many. But we do need to realize that the beast is alive and well. There, there's no statue of Biden that Americans are being called to bow down to. You, you can complain about the federal government, but there's no Trudeau tra- temple or, or a requirement to bow whenever we see a Canadian flag. And I think there's a long journey from what we've called persecution to the demand of state worship in the first century. But the pressure to conform or pay the price, the show of power and the promise of life that's delivered through Hollywood, through the music industry, the flipping over of calling what is evil good and good evil displayed by artists like Cardi B, don't look into it, just trust me. The pressure to conform that is demanded by Facebook and YouTube and other social, social media that have, that have become a tool that wields real power and pressures and offers comfort if you do conform. These are the tools of the second beast. So our other response to the beast is that we need to be aware of small compromises. See, what we do with our minutes becomes what we do with our hours, becomes what we do with our days, becomes how we spend our lives. So although the beast looks different than the threat of Rome, the call for the church is the same today. The very thing Jesus, through John, was warning his church about, do not compromise. 
Do not be drawn in. And the point of chapter 13 is that Christians are susceptible. Christians are not immune to the pressure, power, and prestige that we are offered every single day. J. Nelson Craybill asks this important question. He says, is our culture really as free from idolatrous expressions as we would like to imagine? Or are the gods we worship so embedded within our culture that we fail to recognize them? But here's the truth of Revelation. All other gospels are anti-gospels. Any good news that tells you you are good on your own, you can, you can serve Jesus and bow to the gods of the world, whether they be money, power, a reliance solely on self-improvement, that is anti-gospel. All other saviors are anti-Christs. And sometimes these are of our own creation, no one's fault but our own. Placing people and things at the center of our lives, our friends, our spouses, our new job or circumstance, our new position, our political party, they can't be our saviors. Whatever tries to take the place of the lamb at the center of our affection is anti-gospel and anti-Christ. And the call of the second beast is relentless. And the answer throughout Revelation is a return to worship. It's, it's revisited over and over and over in Revelation to proclaim the goodness and the supremacy of the Lamb above all other things. Around the time that, that John wrote Revelation, Rome seemed unstoppable. The beast loomed large, and it was belief and allegiance to a risen Lamb, a cosmic Christ that brought hope and power to a persecuted church. And that's the same for us today. It, it helped them see what appeared from an earthly perspective as a great dragon for the lying, powerless worm that he was and is. And in doing so, the beast had no power over them. And it drove Rome crazy. In the first century, when the church was under threat and pressured to submit to Rome and worship empire, their response was basically that they had nothing left to give the empire. They had nothing left to give Caesar. Why? Because as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So sorry, Caesar, I've got no worship left for you. I'm giving it all to Jesus. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. See, the beast seemed to have a mortal wound. The beast seemed to create an image that could speak. The beast promises so much, but we worship Jesus, God incarnate, who took on flesh, who really did die and who really did come back to life. So you can pose and you can promise and you can huff and puff, but Christ is a seven and you are a six. Everything you offer is an imitation. We have the real thing. Church, don't settle for anything less than Jesus. And the church has stood its ground through the centuries by proclaiming that we will not settle for anything but Jesus himself. For there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Only he has the words of eternal life. Life that cannot be found in social media, the life-sucking monster that it is, cannot be found by a political movement always based on humanity's strivings and desires. It's not found in the next best thing. There is no next best thing. True life, eternal and protected, flourishing life is found in and oriented toward the cosmic Christ who was and is and is to come. Amen. 
Church, I love you. I miss you. I can't wait to see you face to face. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and may he give you peace. Amen. God bless you, church.